Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Couple XY podcast. I'm Rosie. And I'm Brian. And this is the podcast where we drink and talk about stuff. We are, And this is a good weekend for drinking because it is St. Patrick's Day. It is St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day weekend. weekend. Yes. Although we hadn't done a whole lot of festivities. We went to our favorite bar. Excuse me, I'm kind of moving in and out of the mic because I'm opening my wine right now. <laughs> um, but we went to our favorite bar a little while ago, and they have a DJ. But I don't know. They. It was a mediocre DJ. I mean, I mean, we're only they, there for they a couple had of songs. Pony, yeah, they, and Gene in a bottle were his his first two songs. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Women of a certain age were really digging it. Yeah, <laughs> that bar has become like like middle aged people bar. I think it's always been a middle aged people bar. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, I've been middle aged for a while. I think because I don't think you're th- realizing how old you're getting. No, before the when I when I first came down here and when we first went before it had the name change, like I saw a lot of teenagers there. I don't think t- teenagers, teenagers in a bar, baby. Not teenagers. You know what I mean? Like youngins, <laughs> like young twenty somethings. Anyway, yeah, it's it's our bar, but I have my Irish coffee. You got an Irish coffee. I had an old fashioned, and the reason I kind of left was because it was an event night, so they were giving everything in plastic cups. I didn't feel like drinking beer. Yeah. Because I, I just don't enjoy beer that yeah, much it's anymore. Too, it's bloaty feeling. Too bloaty, yeah. And so uh, I didn't really want to drink, although that mango beer we had the other day was pretty good. Oh, my good. God. I want it so bad. If anybody wants to send us, um, what's it called, a mango cart from Golden Road, Golden Road Brewing, that was delicious. We had that at our, um, at, I it's my favorite pizza place in the town, and maybe. I don't know. There's two favorite. There's two favorites. Yeah, and there's another one across the river that we've never gone to. That's really good too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, it, it's it's okay. I mean, uh, um, the one the first time we got a pizza from there was like a chicken pizza, and the chicken was like ground chicken, and it was very good. Yeah. And so we've, but the calzone you had because it's like ha- half price calzone or on Wednesdays. Yeah, so. seven dollar calzone night or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, the one that you got was freaking phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you ordered it for me. Yeah, because the girl was like, yeah, it has this and this. I was like, oh, she's going to love that. Was it called chicken fettuccine? No, you were supposed to write this down. I was supposed to write it down because I don't remember it now. You don't remember it now. It was chicken something, right? Capri- yeah, chicken something. Oh, I said I was going to remember it. Boy, boy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let let Offspring just hammer you on this one because she even suggested it, and you're like, no, I'll remember it. <laughs> chicken italian word that's what it was chicken right. some italian word so we we kind of did that um i don't know a good week yeah good week well stressful week i mean this week was kind of a shitstorm actually <laughs> there was a lot going on it's too much too much work just so it was like monday felt like it was two whole days that's how long it was for me and i had to stay late and it was just all sorts of, bah. how about you? It was okay. Um, I don't, um, I feel like um, there was a little thing at work this week and I really didn't want to talk to <clears throat> my boss about it or anything like that because I was like, you know, it's kind of a personality conflict and I'm not going to be a little whiny bitch about it, although I am kind of not happy with somebody because I feel I was a little disrespected. Did you tell me about this? No. Okay. And um, it's just like general disrespect mm-hmm. for like not only experience, but like just in general. 
And I'm kind of like, you know what? You ain't got, you ain't got the balls <laughs> to disrespect me yet. Like you ain't got, you ain't got man balls enough. I mean, he's a good, he's dude, a young guy, young guy, and getting a pretty decent position and moving up. But I'm just kind of like, you know what? You're not really showing proper respect, son. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I was kind of not real happy about it, and I was like, kind of, I was kind of harboring a grudge. Oh. And then I got a pep talk from, like, an engineer from another country. And I was like, fucking pep talks don't work on me. What are you trying to do? <laughs> they don't know pep talks don't work on you. Yeah, I know. I, like, they're like, oh, we're going to have a good week. This is going to be the end. I'm just like, shut up. <laughs> shut up. I hate it when you talk to me like this because just shut up. I didn't think other, other countries had pep talks. I, I don't know. It was really weird. And I'm like, I don't work hard for you. I work hard for the six people I work with. And for money. I mean, I, I, I try to work decently hard for my company. But what really matters to me most is doing my job as well as I can to keep the other people I work with from having to work harder. That's really nice, baby. That's really, I, I'm almost like a Ron Swanson in some sense. <laughs> you know, I would do, I would, I will work 23 hours if nothing gets done. You know, <laughs> he, he hates government so much right. that he doesn't want anything to get done by the government. And he will work as hard as possible to make sure that doesn't happen. Ron Swanson's an interesting character. All right. So, yeah, that was my little thing. I don't know. It, it's not really a big deal. Um, I, I, I'm like, I, I'm not going to whine and cry about it to like anybody at work. I'm just going to. You're just going to deal with it? Just going to put my head down and work harder. Okay. Did you kind of confront him about it? No, I don't confront people. Way too passive aggressive for that. <laughs> like at work. I mean, I can't confront people at work. Like, really. Okay. Because I'll get mad and I'll yell at them. Mm. And I'll cuss at them. I mean, you've seen me lose my temper. Yeah, you need to. Yeah, and like if I have to do that at work, I'm going to get dragged into HR. Okay. So I don't really do it. Well, you could like take a deep breath and... Explain calmly things. Until somebody questions me, and then I'm going to just blow up. Oh, Lord. Okay. (laughs) Well, yes. So, it's uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend, Mm -hmm. and it's also March, which means it is Women's History Month. Yay! Go women! (laughs) Yeah, go like 52% of the population. Okay. So, you think that women shouldn't have a month? No, I do. Okay. I'm. I'm just. I just think that what you just said was funny. Like go women, go yeah, like whatever. Uh, Y'all get y'all's month. (laughs) Enjoy it. Okay. Um. So yeah, I I was hoping you would create some sort of segue. So okay, let's (laughs) let's let's segue this bitch. (laughs) So, in the history of the world, (laughs) there have been many women. Yes. And this is their month, March, which contains many awesome days, like my sister's birthday. And Oh yeah, when was her birthday? It's the twenty seventh, twenty fifth. It's the twenty fifth. Oh, okay. It's the twenty fifth. I need to put it on the calendar so I remember to text her. Okay. And <laughs> she's putting a note in right now. It also has Saint Patrick's Day, 
and the Ides of March, which I'm totally pissed about that I didn't say anything about the Ides of March. Yeah, I when I woke up on the Ides of March, I looked at my calendar. And I was like, oh, hey, it's the Ides of March. And that's like all I, I, I never about. realized it was that day. Do we need to do something special in the Ides of March? Ides of March is a great day. It's about it's about getting together as a group and stabbing people. <laughs> it's not about just stabbing people. It's doing it as a group. What did you say, the 25th? Yes. It's Easter's birthday. Okay. So, anyway, what we're going to talk about tonight is a uh, we did research. We did do research. And we're going to talk about two women in history. Two influential women of history. And hopefully they are people either you've never heard of or maybe don't know a whole lot about. Yes. So we didn't pick Amelia Earhart, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Or any of the big ones. Or any of the other big ones. Yeah. So um, it's going to be a two-parter for sure because I have a lot of information. Okay. And you have a decent amount of information too. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll go, we'll do mine first. Okay. And then um, we'll, yeah. take a, we'll take a break and then we'll do yours. Okay. Okay. So... Um, my, so Brian tried to guess who it was earlier while we were at the bar, but he was unsuccessful. <laughs> so who I picked is, um, her name is Margaret Sanger. Have any idea who she is? No. Okay. So Margaret Higgins Sanger was an American birth control activist, sex educator, writer, and nurse. Sanger popularized the term birth control opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, and established organizations that evolved into the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. That's who I'm talking about tonight. Fun. You don't seem enthused. (laughs) Very important woman in history did, oh my gosh, uh, like, yeah, I'll get into it. She, like, she did so much. Um, There is a little bit of controversy about her, which we'll we'll get into. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but she is a very important figure in women's health and women's rights. Um, just all around kind of badass woman. So there's a saying, and, and she's a great woman. Um, I think the person I chose is a great woman. Um, and there's many other great women out there, which we won't get into probably in this episode. But there's a saying that, you know, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know who said it. I wish I could, I, I looked it up beforehand because I thought about this during the week. Um, some people are born great. Some people become great. And some people have greatness thrust upon them. Mm-hmm. Which do you think yours is? Um, I think she evolves into greatness. Okay. For sure. I think certain aspects of her life like drive her to become the really influential woman that she is. That she was. Um, So yeah, let me just get into it. Sanger was born Margaret Louise Higgins in 1879 in Corning, New York, to Irish Catholic parents, a, quote, free-thinking stonemason father, Michael Hennessy Higgins, and Anne Purcell Higgins. Michael had immigrated to the United States aged 14, joining the Army in the Civil War as a drummer aged 15. Upon leaving the Army, he studied medicine and phrenology, which, what is that? It's the study of bumps on people's heads. Are you serious? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's look up phrenology. I think it's there's a skull. I mean, it's, it's pictured. Phrenology is a pseudoscience which involves the measurements of bumps on the skull to predict mental traits. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Did you know that? Were you fucking with me? <laughs> 
Are you going to say anything? I don't know if I knew it for real <laughs> or if I didn't. I, 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 there was a line in a movie one time where it was like <laughs> something, but I, I, I thought it was similar to that. So I was like, oh, yeah, it must be this. But I never thought it was a real thing. Yeah, it's a pseudoscience, so yeah. It was in a movie called Minute Work with uh, um, Charlie Sheen and uh, uh, Emilio Estevez. Mm. I have no idea what that movie is. Yeah, they're garbage men. All right, so did you start a timer? No, I didn't. In this little... Do we need to start a timer? Do we really need to start a timer? Um, yeah, let me start a timer real quick. Okay. Starting. Okay. Um, so yes, he was... He studied medicine and phrenology a weird little suicide about bumps on people's heads, but ultimately became a stonecutter chiseling out angels, saints, and tombstones. Michael became an atheist and an activist for women's suffrage and free public education. Anne Sanger's, um, Margaret Sanger's mother accompanied her family to Canada <coughs> during the Great Famine of Ireland. She married Michael in 1869. In 22 years, Anne Higgins conceived 18 times, birthing 11 alive before dying at age 49. Sanger was the sixth of 11 surviving children. So lots of kids, lots of miscarriages. Supported by her two older sisters, Margaret Higgins attended... Oops. Sorry, I scrolled too far. <laughs> go, 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 go. Go back. Okay. Attended um, Claverack, Claverack College and Hudson River Institute before enrolling in 1900 at White Plains Hospital as a nurse probationer. In 1902, she married architect William Sanger, giving up her education. Suffering from consumption, which is a uh, recurring act of tuberculosis, Margaret Sanger was able to bear three children, and the five settled down to a quiet life in Westchester, New York. In 1911, after a fire destroyed their, homes, their home, uh, the Sangers abandoned the suburbs for a new life in New York City. Margaret Sanger worked as a visiting nurse in the slums of the East Side, while her husband worked as an architect and a house painter. The couple became active in local socialist politics. She joined the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party, took part in the labor actions of the industrial workers of the world, including the notable 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike and the 1913 Paterson Silk Strike. So there's, um, not to interrupt you. No, but go you, ahead. You know, like, this is the time period where you see the, um, uh, the, the growth of progressive, like progressivism 1.0. Mm-hmm. And this is, and like socialist were an actual thing in America up until the 50s um, when the Red Scare really like destroyed any kind of like far left. The Red Scare is in? McCarthyism and everybody was a communist and okay. like the hearings um, where you just people got like drug up and accused of being communist, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, you know, anti-American. Yeah, to to do that to people definitely because this is supposed to be a nation of free thought, right? So you shouldn't like your political affiliation, even if it's communist, shouldn't um, it doesn't necessarily go against the principles of the U.S. No, it just depends on if you violate the Constitution to get to that point or not. So you can be a communist and even have communist in politics, but they can't like violate the Constitution. So that's the only thing. Right, but I mean, your belief system, you can believe whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. You should be able to believe whatever you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. And there were actually a lot of communists in that, that day and age, and it was a very uh, a much bigger movement. She also was in New York during the time when you had the um, tragic fires. 
mm-hmm. at the um, the textile industries. Like, yeah. um, have you ever heard that story where the, the women were having to literally jump out of windows to their death? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty. I, think, I feel like we talked about that recently. I think a, a couple, a while back. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, so that's that's the time period that she's in, a, a little historical, you know, yeah, understanding. Yeah, workers' rights, like this is, actu- this is acti- after um, the Industrial Revolution and we're We're actually get- out of the Gilded Age now. Okay, when was the Gilded Age? That was kind of after Reconstruction and up until 1900. Okay. Um, so Reconstruction is like, uh, I don't remember the exact year it ends. The uh, Civil War ends in 65, 1865. And I think Reconstruction lasts for however long. And then once you get out of Reconstruction, you get the Gilded Age where you have like robber barons and the growth of really industrial and in really the growth of industry in the United States. Okay. Um, all right. Where was I? She became involved with local intellectuals, left-wing artists, socialists, and social activists, including John Reed, Upton Sinclair, Mabel Dodge, and Emma Goldman. You know what Upton Sinclair is known for? No. Oh, he wrote The Jungle. The Jungle. The Jungle is the book that ex- was actually supposed to be more socialist, but what actually came about from it because it was supposed to show workers' rights, but what came about of it was the um, uh, the reform of the uh, meatpacking industry in Chicago. Up to Sinclair's The Jungle, you didn't have to read it and like lost your appetite for lunch and, and like no. Oh, it talks about like back when like people would have hands cut off and they would just go into the grinder and, oh, and like would be packaged up and <gasps> put with people's food. Oh. There were rats and and, and just. Uh, like meat Before, like, everywhere. Health codes this is what started, this is what brought health codes right. into existence. That's so, good. So a lot, and you see this sometimes. Like a, another really great woman was Rachel Car- Car- Carson. We aren't going to talk about her, but she wrote the book Silent Spring, which started the environmental revolution. Mm. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you knew any of those names. So uh sanger's political interests her emerging feminism and her nursing experience all led her to write two series of columns on sex education which were titled what every mother should know and what every girl should know for the socialist magazine new york call by the standards of the the standards of the day sanger's articles were extremely frank in their discussion of sexuality and many new york call readers were outraged by them other readers however praised the series for its candor one stated that the series contained a purer morality than whole libraries full of hypocritical cant about modesty. Both were published in book form in 1916. <clears throat> During her work among working-class immigrant women, Sanger met women who underwent frequent childbirth, miscarriages, and self-induced abortions for lack of information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Access to contraceptive information was prohibited on grounds of obscenity by the 1873 federal Comstock Law, and a host of state laws. The Comstock laws were a set of federal acts passed by the United States Congress under the Grant administration, along with related state laws. The Parent Act was passed on March 3, 1873, as the act for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. So what she was doing was illegal, essentially. Um, Seeking to help these women, Sanger visited public libraries, but was unable to find information on contraception. These problems were epitomized in a story that Sanger would later recount in her speeches. While Sanger was working as a nurse, she was called to the apartment of a woman, um, who we will call Sadie Sachs, that's not her real name, who had become extremely ill due to a self-induced abortion. 
Afterwards, Sadie begged the attending doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, to which the doctor simply advised her to remain abstinent. His exact words and actions, apparently, were to laugh and say, you want your cake while you eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. I'll tell you the only sure thing to do, tell Jake to sleep on the roof. A few months later, Sanger was called back to Sadie's apartment, only this time Sadie died shortly after Sanger arrived. She had attempted yet another self-induced abortion. Sanger would sometimes end the story by saying, I threw my nursing bag in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. <clears throat> this story, along with Sanger's 1904 rescue of her unwanted niece, Olive Byrne, from the snowbank in which she had been left, marks the beginning of Sanger's commitment to spare women from the pursuit of dangerous and illegal abortions. Sanger opposed abortion, but primarily as a societal ill and public health danger, which would disappear if women were able to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Given the connection, oops, sorry, I once again scrolled a little too fast. Given the connection between contraception and working class empowerment, Sanger came to believe that only by liberating women from the risk of unwanted pregnancy would fundamental social change take place. Okay. So. Go ahead. No, no, you, 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 you're, you're talking quite a bit. And that's that's fine. You're reading okay, a very good story. I'm trying to get I'm trying to be no. I'm trying to be slow. Okay. And like emphasize the important parts. Am I doing okay? Yeah, you're doing fine. Okay. But it's just let's talk about it. Yeah. And like get yeah, some, you can and you can interrupt me at any time. So let's just you know now's like I think a good time to to take a little little stock of what she's doing and how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Like this is your story. You're just kind of reading through it, which is a good story, and you're doing a great job of, of telling it. But like, what do you feel about it? Like, like you feel like. That, like, she was ahead of her time and how she thought oh, about definitely. this? Yeah, I don't I don't know if she was necessarily ahead of her time because I think a lot of women had the same issue, the same, like, concerns. Um, I think she was, she was a catalyst for change, for sure, to actually, like, help women progress and to have control over their own bodies and their own destinies. Um... I think this is, like, the story that she just told was, like, tragic. Mm-hmm. And there are, I know that there have been so many stories like that. Like, I have um, this story that my mom told me once about one of our great, great aunts um, around this time period um, didn't want to have her eighth or ninth child or whatever child she was on because um, they literally couldn't afford to feed the kid. So she was advised to douche with lie, and that killed her. So, there, yeah, there's so many, like, stories of these dangerous self-induced abortion because women are just so desperate to, you know, to, to want to take care of the children that they have already mm-hmm. and not, like, and not, like, continuously live in poverty because they have all these children that they have to take care of, and they're literally, like, living hand to mouth. Well, do you think at this time that abortions were illegal? Oh, yeah. Abortion was illegal and birth control was illegal. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Or just, it didn't... Talking about contraception was illegal. Okay, you can talk about... I understand that, like, talking about contraceptive was illegal. But, like, was it really a thing? Like, when did condoms become a thing? When were they invented? You um, know? I think condoms... God, condoms have been around for a really long time, actually. Um, like, I think it goes, back, was, to, it goes when, back to ancient Egypt. Well, I mean, like... 
Yeah, but there were things that were in ancient Egypt that later got lost. Like, have we used condoms throughout history, or are they a relatively new thing? Same thing with, like, the, the, the pill. Isn't that the 1950s that that comes around, or 40s? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, the 50s. So, I mean, like, what kind of contraceptive would a woman have had during this time period? Um, she would have had, at this point in time, there was a thing called the diaphragm. Okay. Do you know what that is? Isn't it like a, a woman condom? It's a it's a plug, basically. Yeah, it's um it's a dome shaped. Um, I don't know what it was made of then, but if they still they still make them today, they're not as popular. But they're made of silicone now, I believe, and it goes up the vaginal canal and basically caps um, the uterus. Yeah, you so gotta that, so yeah. that semen can't enter into the uterus. So, or cups the cervix. Excuse me. So that semen can't get. So it's the, not probably not the most comfortable thing for women. Probably not. I mean, you can you can probably feel it. I would think um, that it'd just be hard to shove up there. You got to shove it up there, right? Yeah, you got to shove it up there every time. Yeah. Yeah, that's just <laughs> not sexy or hot or just like probably not the best alternative. I would. I, I yeah. So I mean, and that's kind of what I'm asking. I mean, like I understand that it was illegal to talk about contraceptive, but like, and, and that's the morality of of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, which I understand, but like, even still, like women, I think there's a bigger thing with like women not even understanding how like children are made, you know, like, how do we stop this? How do I stop myself from getting pregnant? And the guy's like, you, you, you just don't have sex. And that, and <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the guy. The, undereducated women, probably for sure. That was probably a thing. Yeah. And then like the, the doctor who said that might've been an, a- sounds like an asshole, but I mean, yeah. like he might've had no better advice to give to her like he doesn't say he can't say hey you can go get on a pill right the pill didn't exist right um i i did look up the first condom mm-hmm. which they have been around for thousands of years um but weren't good for safe sex it was charles goodyear's discovery of vulcanized rubber in 1839 that brought condoms to the masses so there were condoms in what year 1839 okay 1839 yeah the what wait what year was the discovery of vulcanized rubber 1839, or condoms were in 1839. Oh, good, yeah. Charles Goodyear's discovery of vulcanized rubber in eight. Yes, his discovery of vulcanized rubber in 1839. Because vulcanized rubber also leads to tires. Yeah, and a lot of his uh, name is Goodyear, so he makes tires. Yeah, so like a lot of other. So things. the invention of tires plus the invention of condoms. Right. And so everything else. we don't really know like when condoms were invented in in relation to that afterwards. Let's see. The first bulk rubber condom. Condom condoms. You know, I mean, like. Um, hello? Around 1858. Okay, so so still a little bit of time. Yeah. But like you... But definitely in Margaret Sanger's time... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it would have been there. Yes. So, like... Men just didn't want to wear them, apparently. And did, like, maybe women didn't know. And maybe, like, part of this is the, the, the understanding that, that birth control and all this was... We needed better education. Yes. And that's, that's definitely where it starts, is education, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, which, yeah, which is why she was writing all these pamphlets and wanted to give them out and, like, have them mass-produced for, you know, for women to read and actually, mm-hmm. you know, get information and, about and contraception. kind of has a, a, a double edge to it, a, a bit of a, a, a trend that happens a lot in politics. They went with the Comstead Act to stop this. But mm-hmm. did you hear how vague it sounded? Yeah, very vague. Like, it could be anything. Can anything, yeah, anything can, can so, be considered vulgar. Like, 
So it becomes one of those things where do you need your loss to be extremely specific or extremely vague? And I guess it's who passes them and what they want to do with it. And and you see this still today, like the the laws in like that are being passed uh, against um, um, trans people, right? Yeah, what they're saying uh, like drag shows and stuff like that. It's so vague mm-hmm. that they can pretty much do anything they want with it, right? And they can define drag however they want to, define right? It. So there's not, yeah. So so this is an example of a law that they were used that was so vaguely written that they could do anything they want with it, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and for what purpose, we, you know, don't really understand. To control morality. Yeah, but not all morality. Right. Um. Because, I mean, this is, the, this is also the same time that prohibition, like, like the, you're getting more and more people trying to outlaw prohibition or uh, begin prohibition, outlaw alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's another, like, these progressive ideas. Yeah. Wait, was um, prohibition a progressive idea? Very. Oh, okay. Interesting. Sounds okay. like a conservative idea. It does sound like a idea. But it's a very con- a progressive idea. But so was eugenics at the time. Mm-hmm. And we will get into eugenics. Okay. So that's the controversial part of all this. Um, okay, let's see. Where was I? Okay. In 1914, Singer launched The Woman Rebel, an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception using the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. Sanger, collaborating with anarchist friends, popularized the term birth control as a more candid alternative to euphemisms such as family limitation. The term birth control was suggested in 1914 by a young friend named Otto Bobstee. Sanger proclaimed that each woman should be, quote, the absolute mistress of her own body, end quote. In these early years of Sanger's activism, the viewed birth She viewed birth control as a free speech issue, and when she started publishing The Woman Rebel, one of her goals was to provoke the legal challenge to the federal anti-obscenity laws, which banned dissemination of information about contraception. Though postal authorities suppressed five of its seven issues, Sanger continued publication, all the while preparing uh, Family Limitation, another challenge to to anti-birth control laws. This 16-page pamphlet contained detailed and precise information and graphic depictions of various contraceptive methods. In August of 1914, Margaret Sanger was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws by sending the woman rebel through the postal system. Rather than stand trial, she fled the country. So she's going to England for a year. And this is in 1914? In 1914. Brave woman. Why? She crossed the Atlantic during the height, like the beginning of World War I. Oh, okay. So, like, there's a chance she could have been torpedoed. She could have been on the Lusitania. That's horrifying. Hmm. What happened to the Lusitania? That was the ship that the German U-boat sunk, and it was a passenger liner from Mm -hmm. Canada into Europe, and it was the one of the outrages that the U.S. used as propaganda, and the and the British used as propaganda to get us into World War One. Okay. Um, it, uh, it's how far as I see it, you know, um, other people will tell you that it's not propaganda that, uh, most of the U S wanted to go to war. Hmm. They were just looking for the excuse, but we weren't ready. Um, but yeah, um, later on it's been discovered that it was said that it was a, a uh, not a legitimate target because there were passengers on board and it wasn't containing uh, munitions. Okay. It didn't contain anything. 
Well, it Any blew energy? up and sunk a lot faster than it should have. Oh, okay. So they don't know what was on board? There's nothing on the manifest that's ever been found that said there were explosives on board, but like, according, like, I've seen stuff that says, you know, based off of how quickly it sank, mm-hmm. it had to have had some kind of explosives on board because it really blew apart more than like a t- torpedo would have done. Oh, okay. Maybe there were a bunch of, like, does, like, regular, like, would regular, like, rifle ammunition explode? Or? I mean, you have gunpowder. It would, yeah. like, but it, it, you really are going to look at, even if they're bringing rifle ammunition, though, that would still be illegal to be, like, like it You don't think, make, like, the rich guys of the Lusitania brought their guns and their gunpowder and everything? To not, no, 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 not that much. Okay. Like, like 10 rounds isn't going to do this. This is, like, a hole full of rounds that blew this ship right. apart. Like, had to be, like, barrels and barrels of stuff. Yeah. Boxes. And crates of, crates of, of things. Of, like, you know, uh, artillery shells. Okay. All right, so, anyway. All right, let's see. Margaret Sanger spent much of her 1914 exile in England, where contact with British neo-Malthusians, such as Charles Vickery Drisdell helped refine her socioeconomic justifications for birth control. You ever heard of Malthusianism? No. Okay. You know anything about it? Yes. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Malthusianism is the theory that population growth is potentially exponential, while the growth of the food supply or other resources is linear, which eventually reduces living standards to the point of triggering a population decline. This event, called a Malthusian catastrophe, occurs when population growth outpaces agricultural production, causing famine or war, resulting in poverty and depopulation. Correct. Yes. Now, the, the, the unfortunate part is it's a lot more, it's a lot different than like a very exponential linear growth kind of thing. So, yes, population growth, you can say, is exponential, but not 100% because you do have dips and dives and stuff like that, but it has been like growing it isn't linear. It is probably exponential, which basically means the more people you have, the more people they're going to have mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Right. But also, like, for feeding people, we've had, like, we've had, in like, these revolutions in agriculture which allow us to feed more people. Right. And there there were certain – I uh, I didn't list this, but there were certain um, people that thought, like, after – the advancement of agriculture that the whole idea of the mouth of Malthusianism was no longer was like null and void mm-hmm. because we could re- produce so much food. Right. But we're still facing the effects of this scenario today. Yeah. Like you, you, you will still have this. It, it, the, the overall thought process has to change a little bit because basically it becomes like if yes, we can make more food now, but if the exponential continues to grow, then we have to convert more and more land to putting food and more energy into right, making food. and eventually we run out of land. And eventually we will run out. Mm-hmm. Now, we just push the time further along. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting and very on point about, um, yeah, our over, overpopulation of the planet. Mm-hmm. She, ser- she shared Malthusian's concerns that overpopulation led to poverty, famine, and war. At the 5th International Neo-Malthusian Conference in 1922, she was the first woman to chair a session. She organized the 6th International Neo-Malthusian and Birth Control F- Conference that took place in New York in 1925. 
So she was really influenced by this. Yes. Because he like brought it back to the U.S. in 1925. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, During her 1914 trip to England, she was also profoundly influenced by the liberation theories of Havelock Ellis, under whose tutelage she sought not just to make sexual intercourse safer for women, but more pleasurable. Around this time, she met Marie Stopes, who had run into Sanger after she had just given a talk on birth control at a Fabian Society meeting. Stopes showed Sanger her writings and sought her advice about a chapter on contraception. Now, Henry Havelock Ellis was an English physician, eugenicist, writer, progressive intellectual, and social reformer who studied human sexuality. Marie Charlotte Carmichael Stopes was a British author, paleobotanist, and campaigner for eugenics and women's rights. Mm -hmm. So this is where it gets kind of hairy. Yeah, I guess so. Like, but it, it, again, this is this is where we have a difference in history. Where you would where you would say like this is just the times. This is the times, right? This would be you were progressive in this time if you knew if about you were, it. if you kind of define eugenics. eugenics. Um, eugenics is let's see. Um. Blah, 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 blah. It's a. I should have had the actual definition in front of me. Um, The study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Mm -hmm. Developed by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century especially after the, adop- the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. Right. Yes. So it, it, it went out of fashion after the Nazis like grabbed it, and they turned out to be bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turned out to be bad just, just a little bit. And so, uh, <laughs> but like this was not an, an, an unpopular popular idea across the world at the time. And which, like, see... I can understand people's desire to, like, want to breed out disease and certain, like, mental illnesses and stuff because I'm kind of of the mindset where I don't – there's many reasons why I don't want to have kids, but I don't want to pass on my bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And there is evidence of a hereditary hereditary connection. So I'm not going to have a child Mm -hmm. because I don't want to pass that on. So – I kind of see where the intention might have been good at first, but then it kind of spiraled into this racist, you know, horribly discriminatory practice or idea. Right. And, like, that's that's part of why it's, you know, it becomes very discredited and, um, but, like, it's one of those things, and this is a, this is an argument that you and I, like just a, a different viewpoints we have in in this mm-hmm. is like when you look at people from this time period if they were eugenist like do you hold that against everything they did that was good right because it was a prevailing thought process that it was supposed to be better for society and if you take away the the racist aspect of it and probably a lot of these people weren't racist they just mm-hmm. didn't understand anything else or didn't understand the, the full weight of what they were doing or other people corrupted it after them. Right. Then, you know, it's it seems like a thing that, you know, you can, you can forgive people for. Mm-hmm. And 
that's that's just a that's a, a problem I have with like current like history thought is like we have to we have to hold everyone accountable for every one of their bad actions right and not give them credit for their good actions and or if we or if we're going to talk about their good actions we also have to weigh that with they were bad people mm-hmm. you know we could just say that Thomas Jefferson was a, a founding father who wrote the Constitution and did all this other stuff and wait until college to talk about how you know he had basically had a long-term relationship with one of his slaves right um yeah and like i especially after researching this particular woman yeah there's she was connected with she she had certain views and she had certain connections with people who were you know like profoundly racist Mm -hmm. and used eugenics as a reason to try and eliminate, you know, black people, basically. Yeah, racist. So. Like, not only black people, but a- people of Asian descent. Yeah, like, and other like, race, yeah. every other race besides being white. Quote, white yeah. Or Caucasian. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, this, this does kind of sway me to say, like, yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad aspect of her. Mm-hmm. But do her good what do all the good does all the good that she did outweigh this particular bad belief that right. is wrong that that's wrong right but can you like even understand like if she's surrounded by these people like it, it may not be that she's necessarily a bad person it was just like a belief at the time right you know and that belief might have gotten corrupted by certain people mhm and she's just along for the ride. She's caught up in the gears of it, if you would. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that's that's what I say about, like, history. And, like, even, uh, like, I, I don't believe slave, slavery was right in any way, shape, or form. But I think that there were people at the time who were like, slavery, slavery is wrong, but I don't see a way out of it right now. And that's what I say about some of our founding fathers. Gotcha. Oh, no, I lost my place. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, I totally got where you're coming from on that. She did so much good. Do we hold this thing that now is considered to be so taboo against her? Right, yes. Um, and we will get into more of the eugenic side mm-hmm. here in a bit. Um, so let's see. Early in 1915, Margaret Sanger's estranged husband, William Sanger, gave a copy of Family Limitation to a, a representative of anti-vice politician, Anthony Comstock. Okay, so apparently her and her husband did not get along throughout their live happily ever after. Well. They were estranged? They were estranged, yes. Um, she married twice. Okay. Um, I don't know his reasoning for giving it, but he was tried and convicted spending 30 days in jail um, while attracting interest in birth control as an issue of civil liberty. So he he did good that way. Um, Margaret's second husband, Noah Slee, also lent his help to her life's work. In 1928, Slee would smuggle diaphragms into New York through Canada in boxes labeled 3-in-1 oil. He later became the first legal manufacturer of diaphragms in the United States. Okay, so there's something that you said right there that was very interesting to me. He was having to smuggle diaphragms in. So mm-hmm. even at this time, and what year was that? This was 1915. Okay, so. We, oh, no, sorry, in 1928. Okay, so we were talking about, like, 
So obviously contraceptives were illegal if she's having yes. to smuggle them in. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that is that is interesting. That makes it like it, it like see it, it's so much more you know obvious that we needed like definitely changes if we have no contraceptive that's that women can have. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's it is illegal at this point in time. Okay. Yeah. Um. Like, <clears throat> if you have sex, you have to have a child. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll get into there's a there's an asshole judge that convicts her and has the, the most horrible opinion about it um, that we'll get into. Um, some countries in northwestern Europe had more liberal policies towards contraception than the United States at the time. And when Singer visited a Dutch birth control clinic in 1915, she learned about diaphragms and became convinced that they were a more effective means of contraception than the suppositories and douches that she had been distributing back in the United States. Diaphragms were generally unavailable in the United States, so Sanger and others began importing them from Europe in defiance of United States law. So, yeah, they were legal. Um, on October 16, 1916, Sanger opened a family planning and birth control clinic at 46 Amboy Street in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, the first of its kind in the United States. Nine days after the clinic opened, Sanger was arrested. Sanger's bail was set at $500, and she went back home. Sanger continued seeing women in the clinic until the police came a second time. This, are you okay? Yeah, I had a hiccup burp. <laughs> a hiccup burp. <laughs> this time, Sanger and her sister, Ethel Byrne, were arrested for breaking a New York state law that prohibited distribu- distribution of contraceptives. Sanger and Byrne went to trial in 1917. Byrne was convicted and sentenced to 30 days in the workhouse, but went on a hunger strike. strike. She was force-fed, the first woman hunger striker in the United States to be treated so. Only when Sanger pledged that Byrne would never break the law was she pardoned after 10 days. Sanger was convicted. The trial judge held that women did not have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. Sanger was offered a more lenient sentence if she promised not to break the law, not to break the law again, but she replied, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. For this, she was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. An initial appeal was rejected, but in a subsequent court proceeding in 1918, the birth control movement won a victory when Judge Frederick E. Crane of the New York City Court of Appeals issued a ruling which allowed doctors to prescribe contraception. The publicity surrounding Sanger's arrest, trial, and appeal sparked birth control activism across the United States and earned the support of numerous donors who would provide her with funding and support for future endeavors. So, we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like it comes slow. It comes really slow. But yeah. like, like you also in see in the grand it, scheme of things, not so much. But not like, so much because like you're in one woman's lifetime. Yes. And you've you've gone from like in a very short period of her lifetime, mm-hmm. gone from contraceptives being illegal mm-hmm. to doctors being able to, to prescribe them. Right. Yes. And it doesn't stop there. Obviously. All right. We know it doesn't stop there. Um, in February 1917, Sanger began publishing the monthly periodical Birth Control Review. After World War I, Sanger shifted away from radical politics, and she founded the American Birth Control League, or ABCL, in 1921 to enlarge her base of supporters to include the middle class. The founding principles were the AB, of the ABCL were as follows. We hold that children should, one, should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, and three, only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when these conditions can be satisfied. Sanger established the Clinical Research Bureau, or CRB, in 1923. 
The CRB was the first legal birth control clinic in the United States, staffed entirely by female doctors and social workers. The clinic received extensive funding from John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his family, who continued to make anonymous donors to sa- donations to Sanger's causes in subsequent decades. John D. Rockefeller Jr. donated $5,000 to her American Birth Control League in 1924 and a second time in 1925. So Rockefellers did some good. I mean, like, the Rockefellers have given a lot of money away, mm-hmm. but it's very interesting that, like, that was a cause that he, like, got on. So I wonder if he had met her and she just had a very, like, magnetic personality. This Possible. is this is something that, like, unfortunately in history, like, and, and like, Wikipedia and stuff we don't get is, like, how, how these connections get made. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah, I want to know, like, they, like how, how they connected, what exactly prevented persuaded Rockefeller to give, you know, $5,000 in those days was a lot of money. Yeah. So. Twice. Yeah, twice. So, like, he was very passionate about this. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's very interesting, like, why he would do it, you know? You look at other industrialists at this time. Um, Ford was around this time. He was, we talked a little bit earlier about, like, taking people, like, as, like, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Ford is an example of this. You, right. know, you know, he 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 paid his workers better than anyone else, mm-hmm. but he also made them sign morality clauses. Oh. Like, you couldn't drink, or right. and you had to go to church, at and you all? Had, to, had to do certain, you had to make certain requirements to get this more money. You couldn't drink at all? I, I think. Like, ever? Well, I, a lot of people don't know how bad alcoholism was before Prohibition. Okay. Like, be- maybe, so maybe it was like so bad that that's why it sparked prohibition. Yeah, like before prohibition, like the amount of alcohol consumed in the U.S. was over twice as much as what it is after prohibition. Oh, like okay. it, it is astronomically higher. People were miserable. People just drank a lot, mm. and so a lot of these issues, these social issues, they were like, "This comes from alcohol." Right. Things like. You know, birth control is a subshoot of this kind of in a way because you have women who have men who come home drunk and rape them, basically. Yeah, prob- yeah. And, and that sure. probably happened a lot. I'm, yeah, absolutely. In immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the men would get drunk and die or just go off or get drunk and get fired from their job and not be able to provide for their eight kids mm-hmm. that they have made in drunken rapes. <laughs> drunken, you know, whatever. They're, yeah. They're, like, I, I, they were rapes, but probably at the time we wouldn't. They, the wife wouldn't have called it a rape. It would have been just doing your duty or whatever, you know. Yeah. Meh. Hey, just just realize how good you have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've taken a giant step back as far as like birth control rights go, but yeah, I mean, it's not like women's rights have come so far. Yeah, it's very it's very true. Yeah. We still have a way to go, but okay. yeah, they have come a long, a long way. Um, all right. In 1928, conflict within the birth control movement leadership led Sanger to resign as the president of the ABCL and take full control of the CRB, renaming it the Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau, or BCCRB. BCCRB. <laughs> marking the beginning of a schism that would last until 1938. Sanger invested a great deal of effort communicating within the general public. From 1916 onward... 
She frequently lectured in churches, women's clubs, homes, and theaters to workers, churchmen, liberals, socialists, scientists, and upper-class women. She once lectured um, on birth control to the women's auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey. In her autobiography... The Klan in New Jersey. The Klan in New Jersey. It's not just a Southern thing. Yeah. Uh, In her autobiography, she justified her decision to address them by writing, Always to me, any aroused group was a good group. Meaning that she was willing to seek common ground with anyone who might help promote legalization and awareness of birth control. She described the experience as weird and reported that she had the impression that the audience were all half-wits and therefore spoke to them in the simplest possible language as if she were talking to children. So... She wrote several books in the 1920s which had a nationwide impact in promoting the cause of birth control. Between 1920 and 1926, 567,000 copies of Woman and the New Race and The Pivot of Civilization were sold. She also wrote two autobiographies designed to promote the cause. The first, My Fight for Birth Control, was published in 1931, and the second, more promotional version, Margaret Sanger and Autobiography, was published in 1938. During the 1920s, Sanger received hundreds of thousands of letters, many of them written in desperation by women begging for information on how to prevent unwanted pregnancies. 500 of these letters were compiled into the 1928 book, Motherhood in Bondage. And Sanger worked with African-American leaders and professionals who saw a need for birth control in their communities. In 1929, James H. Hubert, Hubert, a black social worker and leader of New York's Urban League asked Sanger to open a clinic in Harlem. Sanger secured funding from the Julius Rosenwald Fund and opened the clinic, staffed with black doctors, in 1930. The clinic was directed by a 15-member advisory board consisting of black doctors, nurses, clergy, journalists, and social workers. The clinic was publicized in the, ni- the African American press as well as in black churches, and it received the approval of W.E.B. Dubois. Dubois. Dubois the co-founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Hmm? Sanger did not tolerate bigotry among her staff, nor would she tolerate any refusal to work within interracial projects. Well, that's very, very... Very progressive. Very progressive, very good. Um, But, you know, what's incredible to me is how, like, you see, like, the promotion of this in black churches, Mm -hmm. whereas, like, probably in white churches, it was totally, like... uh, thought of as like especially in catholic churches right where they, the whole idea of birth control is i guess frowned upon yeah i mean, I mean at a time but probably mm-hmm. protestant too like uh, probably i would say probably all white churches would say that this was was wrong um it just goes to show you how like black leaders um were so much more progressive in looking out for their community that's all beyond you know what was prescribed morality. Right. And I think it was also just common sense, like seeing how, seeing their community bogged down by, you know, having all of these children that you can't support Mm -hmm. and keeping you in, keeping them in poverty because they, you know, because they don't have birth control and because they don't have the knowledge and they don't know how to stop it. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think that is incredibly impressive on Sanger's part, um, and the fact that she got the approval of Dubois that was is it Dubois or Du Bois. 
I say Dubois. Okay. It can be Du Bois if you want it to be Du Bois, but I think it's Dubois. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I see B O I S and I think Bois. <laughs> um, all right, let's see. In 1929, Sanger formed the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control in order to lobby for legislation to overturn restrictions on contraception. The effort failed to achieve success, so Sanger ordered a diaphragm from Japan in 1932 in order to provoke a decisive battle in the courts. The diaphragm was confiscated by the United States government, and Sanger's subsequent legal challenges led to a 1936 court decision which overturned an important provision of the Comstock Law, which prohibited physicians from obtaining contraceptives. This court victory motivated the American Medical Association in 1937 to adopt contraception as a normal medical service and a key component of medical school curriculums. So, yay. This 1936, oops, sorry. Once again, scroll too far. This 1936 contraception court victory was the culmination of Sanger's birth control efforts, and she took the opportunity, now in her late 50s, to move to Tucson, Arizona, intending to play a less critical role in the birth control movement. In spite of her original intentions, she remained active in the movement through the 1950s. In 1937, Sanger became chairman of the newly formed Birth Control Council of America and attempted to resolve the schism between the ABCL and the BCCRB. Her efforts were successful, and the two organizations merged in 1939 as the Birth Control Federation of America. Although Sanger continued in the role of president, she no longer wielded the same power as she had in the early years of the movement. And in 1942, more conservative forces within the organization changed the name to Planned Parenthood Federation of America, a name Sanger objected to because she considered it too euphemistic. In 1948, Sanger helped found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, which evolved into the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1952 and soon became the world's largest non-governmental international women's health, family planning, and birth control organization. Sanger was the, was the organization's first president and served in that role until she was 80 years old. In the early 1950s, Sanger encouraged philanthropist Catherine McCormick of, like, McCormick Spices. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. To, provi to provide funding for biologist Gregory Pincus to develop the birth control pill. Not of Pincus Spices. <laughs> no, there are no pinkest spices. All right, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, provide funding for biologist Gregory Pincus to develop the birth control pill, which was eventually sold. Which was his spice. <laughs> under the name uh, Inavid. Pincus had recruited Dr. John Rock, Harvard gynecologist, to investigate clinical use of progesterone to prevent ovulation. Am I saying that right? Progesterone? Yes, I am. Pincus would often say that he, could, he never could have done it without Sanger, McCormick, and Rock. Sanger died of congestive heart failure in 1966 in Tucson, Arizona, aged 86, about a year after the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, which legalized birth control in the United States. Sanger called herself an Episcopalian by religion, and her funeral was held at the St. Philip's in the Hills Episcopal Church. She is buried in Fish Hill, New York, next to her sister, Nan Higgins, and her second husband, Noah Slee. Uh, fun fact, one of her surviving brothers was College Football Hall of Fame player and Pennsylvania State University head football coach, Bob Higgins. You know who that is? No? Vaguely. I know of a Higgins football player, but I don't know if that Bob Higgins is it. Okay. Um, so that is her life. We can go more into her 
her views on eugenics, if you want to. I have a whole little sidebar about that. Okay. Um, let's see. So moving back a bit. After World War I, Sanger increasingly posited a societal need to limit births by those least able to afford children. The affluent and educated already limited their childbearing, while the poor and uneduc- uneducated lacked access to contraceptive and inf- contraception and information about birth control. Mm-hmm. Here she found an area of overlap with eugenicists. Yeah, and you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, like, this is something that, like, is a hard truth to, like, swallow. hmm yeah. That, like, you know, the people in society, and we can just kind of be honest here, in society, usually the people who grow up to be criminals or to not, like, do not provide positive feedback to their society usually come from poorer populations. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, like, the really bad ones come from upper population. <laughs> but, like, the general low-level crime is perpetrated by people who are poor. Right. And, like, when you're born into that, it just it's very hard to climb your way out of it. You know, the, you, you've told me, like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is an impossible task. Right. The saying is impossible. Yes, the saying is impossible. It started off as a a contradictory statement by, to explain that something was impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it's like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And eventually somewhere along the line, someone was like, yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get over it. Mm-hmm. Like, it completely changed the meaning. So, you know, I, I completely understand, like where eugenics could come into that like especially her like that 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 thought process was like like if we if we stop the poor people from having children which will lead to more poverty we we end this cycle right and i don't know like it it can kind of it always sounds mean it does sound mean. It sounds like we're trying to eliminate poor people. Right. Which we're trying to eliminate poverty, not the people. Mm-hmm. By not by not making excessive amounts of people. I it, it always comes down to a um a thought process of like um in nature we we have gone away from nature. Right. Because in nature... We think that we're above the laws of nature now, which we are not. Right. So in nature, what you would have is a famine, which would kill off an overpopulation. Right. We have an overpopulation, but there we get we, we eliminate the famine. Mm-hmm. And so... But we still... I mean, yeah, we still deal with famine. We also deal with disease. I think COVID is probably nature's way of saying, hey, you're overpopulated. Yeah, but we've seen these, like, hits before. This just happened to hit a little more globally. Right. We were talking about COVID this morning. It seems like it's so far away now. It does, yeah. Even though it's not. Like, it's still... Three years away, man. Yeah, like, three years since, like... The start. Since, since the start and since quarantine and... Um, but we've all moved on. Yeah, I mean, we've... I don't know if we've moved on. We've just adjusted. Mm-hmm. Like, especially down here since, you know, the laws are so laxed. Sorry, I keep hitting the mic. And the whole, like, restrictions are barely there, if at all. Except when, like, when you go to the, not to our, not to our airport, but to, like, the New Orleans airport. All right, so, um, 
So yeah, eugenics. I, I mean, I understand. Like, I understand some of like the ways that like people see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a person who also believes that the world is overpopulated. Yeah, absolutely. I I I believe that our like as great as our like technological society is, where we have phones and we have all this other stuff, I think we lose our happiness. And I feel like living a simplistic, small, communal um, existence, it, maybe you don't get to travel to New Zealand, but if you don't know New Zealand's there, do you want to travel there? Right. You know, do you find beauty in the area that you're in if you have no idea of what beauty is beyond you? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, like, if you have no internet to see these great places, to desire to go there. Right, but it's, I mean, it's too late to, like, go back to that. You can't all, put the genie back in the bottle. No. What you're saying. Like, we, yeah, we have to evolve. Mm-hmm. And we, we have the means to evolve. Um, we, just, we just have some very stubborn people in positions of power that won't let us evolve. So, I mean, like, part of the eugenics, and then this is getting off of this. Well, I guess it does go to this it woman's uh, 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 entire life. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, do you... If we live in smaller societies where we control our birth, right? Does it does it overall make for a healthier society and planet? Absolutely. And and I feel that way too. Yeah. You know, I feel like you you live we should live in smaller cities. Yes. We should leave less imprint on the world. Not I more. Mean, I don't I believe that there were not supposed to be this many people on the planet at all. Right. Like, like, I don't want to go back to, like, a tribal society where we all, like, have to hunt and gather and then have to kill the next tribe over for our food or they right, which... might possibly kill us. But, I mean, I will say that, like, if you live in a city that has an industry and is thriving and is okay, and then the area around you can support that industry, that's all you need. More of a Greek city-state mm-hmm. kind of mentality. Yeah. In ag- an agrarian society right you had athens which was a a a hub of like you know uh politics and and art and like all this culture Mm -hmm. but like around athens you had farms because you couldn't import like you know chinese chickens (laughs) because they didn't know china existed (laughs) right do we have chinese chickens i think no we have we have tyson chicken from arkansas okay i'm sure maybe somewhere but you know what I'm saying. I mean, like, the area around Athens had to support Athens. Right. So is it better to live in such an integrated society now or live in a society like that as long as you can have peaceful interaction? Right. And, and that's the thing is what ends up happening is your population goes bigger and bigger and bigger, and now there's a, a community that has to live in an area that doesn't have very good, like, agriculture mm-hmm. and they can't get the things they need so they have to attack the next you know city over right so yeah it's it's this sort of double-edged sword that like once you once you establish that you live in this in this smaller self-sustaining city mm-hmm. um you're like times are good there's no famine there's no war so there's a population boom because people are, ha- are happier and they're having more sex and they're having more babies but 
do we stop that completely with birth control? I mean, could you could you could definitely control it? Yeah, you control it that way. Like, like does would birth control allow us to like move to the 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 genesis of this city state kind of like society? Yeah, like Where, maintain like, if we like maintain a balance. Yeah, so that we didn't produce too many people for mm-hmm. the area that could sustain us. Right, and see, yeah, that I think that's. That's the rub. That's that's the key element right there is maintaining a balance. We are not balanced right now. No. We are grossly off balance. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's that's how we uh, that's how we progress is by adopting this idea of keeping balance. So you think birth control is what helps us progress? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. And you think Sayer? Sanger. Sanger. Is it, like, was key in this. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 like, I'm impressed. Yeah. She, the amount that she, the amount of stuff that she did in her life, mm-hmm. like, she, she challenged the courts. She challenged the law. She went, she went to jail be, for what she believed, and she made actual change. And she... I, I know she didn't do this single-handedly, but she was she was the leader in all of this where, you know, she got contraception, you know, legalized. And then she... You're welcome, women. Yeah, you're welcome. And then <laughs> she worked with, with, doctor, with doctors and scientists to develop the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. Like, that's unbelievable. Um, her, her views on abortion, I can understand... Um, where she... You didn't really touch on that too much. Right. I have a whole section on that, too. Okay. So we'll go to that. Uh, Sanger opposed abortion and sharply distinguished it from birth control. She believed that the latter is a fundamental right of women and the former is a shameful crime. In 1916, when she opened her first birth control clinic, she was employing harsh rhetoric against abortion. Flyers she distributed to women exhorted them in all capitals, do not kill, do not take life, but prevent. Sanger's patients at that time were told that abortion was the wrong way. No matter how early it was performed, it was taking life, and that contraception was the better way, the safer way. And it took a little time, a little trouble, but it was well worth while in the long run because life had not yet begun. So, I mean, like, how do you feel about that? Um, she did. Um, there's more. There's obviously I have more information, but yeah, to sum up, like she did. Um. Uh, she did support what she called therapeutic abortion for when the mother's life is in danger. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she, it's not like she was going to ever, it's not like she ever put the life of the child above the life of the mother. Okay. Yeah. Which is, I think the important distinction is that the life of the mother is always paramount because without mommy, we can't have baby. Right. But like, like there are some people who would say that like any, any pregnancy is is inherently dangerous. Absolutely it is. So the life of the mother is always in danger. Yeah. So, like, and, I, okay, I can see that, you know. Mm-hmm. But, like, what percentage of danger do you, like, like, it feels like she was like, are you in immediate danger or not? Is, is more of her I mean, thing. she was a nurse, and she, I think she was very practical and scientific in her thinking. Mm-hmm. So I don't think she had 
I don't think she would have any qualms about and and she saw women die yeah because of these you know these self-induced back alley abortions that were happening so I think yeah I think she was I think she was very pragmatic about the whole idea of therapeutic abortion right but you could tell she's also very anti right she's very pro-life I guess pro-life and in her own way, yeah. Well, I guess anti-abortion would actually be the best way to say this. Yeah, she is, she is anti-abortion. Yeah, she's anti-abortion completely. Um, not completely. That's what I mean. Like, she's... It would take a very big thing to make her go to that step. Is what, Right. You know? Um, she, yeah, like, she wanted birth control to be so widely available mm-hmm. that abortion was, would become... Very extremely rare, so, except in times of emergency. Right. So, so she is almost like you in this this sense. Yeah. Like, like you don't support abortions, and, and nobody I think, supports abortions. I think a lot of people don't support abortions. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't think anybody supports abortion. Nobody wants to have an abortion. I think that is dangerous rhetoric. That um, that an, that anti choice that some anti choice people like to propose. Mm-hmm. That there are people who are who want to use abortion as birth control, which right. is not, it, which is honestly impossible, because it is, while while the procedure is now safe, it's now medically safe. It is extremely not dangerous, but it, it's extremely cumbersome on the body, mm-hmm. and just and and just not not a good idea at all. So. Um, uh, I think and it's much easier to just ha- to just take a pill or have an IUD or have an implant. Just we have all of these birth control options now, mm-hmm. and it's just so much easier to just do that. So do do you think that education is still an issue? Absolutely. Because like, and is cost still an issue? Cost? Yeah. Um. Yes, I think. Um. I think Planned Parenthood is is so important. To have to 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 keep it open because it does do a sliding scale, um, a sliding price scale for birth control mm-hmm. based on um, a person's income. Okay. So, I think it should be free regardless. Of if like it is free right now on most insurance plans, I think it should be free regardless. Um, it. Socialist. Which, yes. <laughs> Which that's my that's my socialist person. That's my that's my socialist idea is that it should be free. Um, es- like especially right now, like okay. we're so overpopulated that it should be free right now. Like later on, when we when we become balanced, like maybe then and like poverty is eradicated, mm-hmm. like maybe then charging for it isn't like an outrageous idea. But right now. I think it should be available everywhere, like, and, and be incredibly easy to get. Right. So, and, like. I think it should be in stores. It shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to ask a doctor to, to prescribe it to you. Well, I think you have to balance it, right? Especially hormonal, like, because they don't give you condoms all day long. Right. Um, Which is a form of birth control. You just right. have to use them. It's just, it's not as effective. Yeah, okay. Unless you're on antibiotics. <laughs> right? Antibiotics will, like, completely, like, 
take your your like birth control and like make it null and void, right? The pill. Um, it will. The, the pill. Yes. Yeah, it will affect. It does affect it. Yes. Um, there are. Oh, I don't. And I don't, I don't know. know if a lot of women who are going to get I, IEDs. IUDs. You just said IEDs. Yeah, whatever. Not explosives. <laughs> it's an intrauterine device. It's an IUD. Yeah. Um, that's another thing about. I think we can we can keep progressing a, mm-hmm. as far as birth control goes. I think it's very important to start to introduce um, male forms of birth control because I believe it's much easier to take the bullets out of a gun than to try and create a shield, than try to create a bulletproof vest. Okay. So there are there are experimental male forms of birth control, like, you're going to hate this, <laughs> but um, basically an injection into the, um, the van's deferens, the, uh, the tube where your semen comes out, and basically fill that fill a part of that to block it so that semen never comes out. Okay. Um, which doesn't have any negative effect on your body. It just kind of is reabsorbed. You know what I mean? The, the testosterone is reabsorbed. Yes. Like, I've never done enough research, and I'm, I... haven't either. This is just I'm, stuff that I've come across. I'm 43. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I haven't had my vasectomy yet. Yeah, and vasect- most vasectomies are reversible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I haven't had one yet, well, one is time. Another is like, I'm never sick enough to like meet my deductible. (laughs) Yeah. So it kind of like these kind of procedures that would be expensive. I would think I I feel like I don't want to go do because I'm like, I'm just gonna have to pay for it all out of pocket, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but it'd be much cheaper than my surgery. uh, Yes. but you're become, on birth control right for now. For me to become sterile, yeah. And yeah, I'll probably stay on birth control after you get a, after you get a vasectomy because you're, it regulates my period and it regulates everything else about me, basically. So, um, so that's one of my like vasect- vasectomy things is like I I'm like I don't. And the other thing is I've not done enough research or talked to enough people to know if it's going to affect my masculinity it's not going to affect your masculinity i've not talked to enough people who have had it okay like like you telling me that does not convince me i know but it's a total myth i would have to talk to somebody who has had one okay um okay so anyway um back to to the whole birth control thing so like like i'm gonna i'm of the opinion like okay Birth control, this was one of her, like, main things. Birth control to to help the poor. Right. To help the poor get out of poverty. Does our current system allow for that or not? Like, if you already have children and you're in poverty, you make more money off of having more children. You... Get a stipend, yeah, but does it does that amount counteract the cost of raising that child? And I have feeding that no child? idea. I don't think it does because I will say that I. And this is just it, it's hard for me to say, like it's hard for me to know because I'm not an expert on like social economics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like 
the larger families are coming from the poorest people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So why? Lack of education. Do you think it's literally lack of education? I like, think it's Do you think awesome. at this point in our, in our society mm-hmm. that lack of education tells you not how to not have a fucking kid? I think it's that more so. I think it's religious views. Do you think inner city people who have six fucking kids have religious views that are telling them not to have kids or not to ha- not to not have kids? <laughs> yeah. You think so? Yeah. You, you, okay. Especially down here. I think that there is this whole moral quandary. Um, and it, it starts as, it starts as teenagers. It starts at, at puberty, like this whole like, abstinence only education is wrong and fucked up and doesn't work but i'm saying like you have and you know and it goes to like educating the parents too it's like how do parents talk about birth control how like how to make how how my dad gave me a pamphlet and told me don't get no bitches pregnant (laughs) (laughs) yeah you don't want to get no kid no no woman pregnant right now son Like I straight up went to my mom when I was eight, when I was 16 and asked for birth control and she cried, which is discouraging. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you, how do you, how do you like educate kids as well as educating parents um, to be okay with the fact that your teenager is probably going to have sex and it's better for them to have safe sex than to try and tell them to not have sex at all. I think this is a an, an idea that comes from grandparents. Okay. I think grandparents talk to parents at some point and tell them, look, you had sex when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. We had sex when we were a teenager. The biggest thing is don't try to hide it. Right. Try to be honest about what sex is. And I just don't think that as a society we've reached that point. No, because like we continue to try to like hide this idea that our kids aren't going to have sex. Right. We keep but ignoring that. If we our parents had actually, even as adults, tell us you're being stupid, mm-hmm. you know, learn from my mistakes. They're going to make the same mistakes. We we this is the biggest mistake that gets made generation after generation. I think. Yeah. Like, like, of other mistakes, things have gone different. Like, hitting your wife is phased out or phasing out. Well, the concept that hitting your wife is wrong is prominent. It's common. Yes. So, hitting your wife is literally being phased out. Like, like beating women is being phased out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> like... Like, compared to what it was three generations ago. hmm Yeah. Um, so, like, there are certain aspects of this that have, have phased out. But this seems to be the one thing that never phases out for some reason. Because talking about sex with your kid is really awkward. Yeah, but, like, it's not even... You know, I've talked to other people about this, and and I I actually think this is a generation that is going to get it right. Like you and the the next ones are going to start to get this shit right. Yeah, I think so. Because we're no longer trying. Less and less are y'all acting like we didn't do it in high school. Because I think like 
people being so sexually active in high school has like woken people up to this shit. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I know guys who are like, yeah, everyone banged that girl in high school. And that's another thing we need to, that's not that. And that's also about education. Like I think health classes can progress and there, I know there's a level of maturity that teenagers just can't surpass. No, but I think but that like, I think they can be more mature about sex. The, the biggest problem I see now is, like, the overall, like, um. There's a stigma. N- not that. It's, like, um, both, both male and female have been so overstimulated or, or get so much pornography so easy at such a young age mm-hmm. that, like, now, like, the, the teenage generation is doing things that would have been completely and totally, like, foreign to us. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah it's possible, I'm sure. And, and like, like literally, like, mm-hmm. like I would have, I would have never, I knew what threesomes were when I was in high school, but I would have never thought about having a threesome in high school. Mm-hmm. And if anybody had, they would have been a legend. <laughs> but now I'd be like. I knew people that had threesomes in high school. And we're so. a different generation. Yeah, we are. Yeah. But it's, it's like, so much in small town, like, small town culture also plays a big pol- uh, uh, part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, as you get into smaller towns, people fuck a lot more. Yeah, because they're bored. They're bored. <laughs> have nothing else to do. Uh, all right, so we hit our alarm. How are you feeling about it? I feel good. What do you think about Margaret Singer? I mean, like, I, I think she did a lot of good. And, like, for a... For what... There's always going to be that person who does anything for anything. And she was that person for birth control. Right. And and was it surprising that it was a woman? No. No. But, like, you know, for this one particular woman, I mean, like, she is um, impressive. Like, that, that, that is an impressive life. Yeah. And she has an impressive legacy. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, there was something that she said um, that I found very poignant that I want to close with. Um, Yeah, she said, uh, let's see. So... This is about... This is uh, on eugenics. Um... She distinguished herself from other eugenicists by writing eugenists simply imply or insist that a woman's first duty is to the state. We contend that her duty to her to herself is her duty to the state. She said, we maintain that a woman possessing an adequate knowledge of her reproductive functions is the best judge of the time and conditions under which her child should be brought into the world. We further maintain that it is her right, regardless of all other considerations, to determine whether she shall bear children or not and how many children she shall bear if she chooses to become a mother. So. I like it. Yeah, very poignant. Great way to end it. Thank you. Be kind. And take care of each other, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.